This is Chaz Woodson, and you're listening to the Going Offsides Podcast. Terry, welcome to the show. Uh, Terry's the CEO of Inside Lacrosse for anybody that isn't familiar. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to have you here. You have a lot of insight and uh, I'm sure a lot of opinions about everything that's going on in the lacrosse world. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited. It's uh, fun not to be the host. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. And, you know, it's nice to have a couple Midwest people, even a Midwest transplant in Ryan. So everybody bit, in some yeah. way is connected to Ohio or Michigan. So that's a 100%. unique thing in the lacrosse world. So, um, Terry, are you tired yet from all of the Ivy League news and hunting down truths and, uh, you know, everything that's going on with the Ivy League in general? Uh, it's funny that you use the word truth. I was having this conversation earlier today because, you know, they're, it's, it's like in all of these universities mottos, right? Is that like, we are gonna, we are in the pursuit of truth and it does. And I know that there are a lot of constituents, be they alums, parents, coaches, in many instances, uh, the, uh, sequence is that i don't know that's my sat word the the willingness to uh delay and in some instances overcomplicate decision making in hopes that the situation resolves itself of its own volition or accord which certainly it's not going to do Mm -hmm. uh and and partly motivated by a desire to avoid perception or judgment uh right or wrong is it seems like one of the motivating factors here. And a lot of folks are telling me that they're disappointed that there isn't more willingness or desire to just simply tell the truth. And in this instance, I wouldn't actually say that the Ivy League presidents and athletic directors are not telling the truth. I would say that they are, and well, I suppose they are in the sense that they're providing false hope that a season might occur. Um, Mm -hmm. And all of that being said, it is possible that some Ivy League schools will play. Um, In doing so, they will kind of take a really bold step of doing something that isn't necessarily unanimous. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, we've seen Yale already withdraw forego the season. Um, and it seems like things are moving quickly in that direction for Cornell as well. And when you go through the other five schools, certainly Harvard and Princeton, based on what they did in the fall, it seems unlikely that they are going to play Penn, Brown, and Dartmouth. They, I mean, you know, we know that Penn is practicing Brown. Um, I don't know whether they've actually started, but they were going to start um, last week and then weather and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, there's just different dots on the spectrum, so to speak. And, uh, and so it's not as if the league should have preemptively made an announcement that they're going to not play spring sports because there is this difference of Mm -hmm. approaches or opinions with on a school by school basis. But the thing I think that is, is frustrating people the most is that, they haven't said definitively one way or the other. They haven't said definitively, yeah. we're going to leave it up to the schools to decide whether or not they want to play and then put the pressure on the individual university presidents and athletic departments. Um, nor have they made gone the other way and said that as a league, we are deciding we are not going to play the way that they did 
in the fall and the winter. And so, you know, the compounding effect of losing two seasons, the fact that these teams were really good, there's a lot of really good players who have invested a lot in their institution, their teammates, et cetera. And now they're sacrificing by putting their lives on hold Mm -hmm. for an additional year in order to preserve the opportunity to wear these colors and play in these stadiums and compete against these opponents. I think the feeling on the player's side is we deserve a little bit more clarity on what it is that you're doing and specifically what it is that you you have done in order to try to give us an opportunity to play. Whereas, I think from the standpoint of the both university administration and athletic administration, their attitude is we don't have to play, right? Like that's one of the unique things about the Ivy league is that, you know, there are financial incentives motivating things all across college sports, right? And Mm -hmm. whether it's the power fives in their pursuit of their broadcast deals, or whether it's the smaller institutions that are very enrollment driven and very motivated by their students paying tuition and a significant percentage of them are athletes you know, there's different sources of financial incentive to play that the Ivy League just doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, I think that, you know, the combination of all these factors is such that they're just like, all right, well, we're going to ride this, ride this boat out and see, see where it takes us. It, it's funny. You kind of mentioned that last piece about the driving force, right? Because when you look at the Ivy League in all other respects, they do things like they have sports that no one else has. And Unlike if you were to look at the Ivy League without lacrosse, you would say, oh, those are really cool niche sports. But lacrosse is kind of like the mainstream sport that they are super successful at. You know, they're not amazing at football. They're not amazing at basketball. You know, those revenue generating sports. So it's unique to be in a place where it's like you take that all away. Everybody else worries about that stuff. They're not worried about the money. And now is lacrosse like that special here anymore to them because again it's just the sport we happen to be great at across the board and like you said you don't if you have an endowment of half a billion dollars you don't really care if a couple of classes don't get to play your spring sport which it's it's awful and you want them to do things and be happy and be great alumni and come back but at the same time like you said we don't have to play where other people are making these decisions of what happens if we don't play it's incredibly well said and well, what, what puts that in even greater light is it's not simply about, you know, the future potential of donorship and whatever else, but it's like, there are kids on these teams whose parents are, you know, multi hundred million dollar donors to these mm-hmm. programs. But, but like you said, I mean, the size of these endowments are so large that it still isn't enough incentive in yeah. order to figure out a solution. They wouldn't feel it for decades. Well, and like the one thing that I'm noticing too is like, you know, obviously we're on the Ivy League kick, the trickle down effect that it's having to, you know, some of the smaller division three co- uh, conferences, like, like a NESCAC. I'm not sure if you saw the press release from the Centennial Conference today, you know, basically the Centennial Conference is on hold. The NESCAC is on hold. Um, a lot of these smaller, you know, a- academically driven conferences with these institutions, you know, they always tend to kind of look to the Ivy League. And I think, you know, basically everybody does because those are, you know, the, you know, uh, quote unquote, the ultimate institutes of higher learning, um, you know, a, a lot of them are looking to them for these decisions. And ultimately, it, you know, it's not just holding up the Ivy League, but now you're getting into some of the lower levels, you know, mm-hmm. Division Three, where some of these high academic institutions are now, you know, um, you know, now they're going to have a major problem because, you know, they do depend on that enrollment. They do depend on that revenue to, to help keep those schools open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think that the, there's an important point that you make there, though, subtextually, which is that the on-campus divide between athletics and mm -hmm. everybody else is strong. And I do think, and I, well, I, this isn't something that I bring personal firsthand experience to, but I've been told so consistently by folks from so many different types of institutions that fall under this umbrella that that divide is real. And mm -hmm. it is a factor in the way in which people are approaching these decisions. Essentially, why do athletes deserve exceptions or privileges that performing arts performing artists mm -hmm. do not receive or something of the like? And uh, that issue is very much at hand. And I think having, so based on what Ryan said and looping back to what you said, Terry, there are, there are two different, and this is a gross overgeneralization of what D3 schools are, but there are enrollment driven D3 schools, and then there are endowment academic driven D3 schools. And there are, there's some gray area there, but the NESCAC being one of them, I, I went, I was, I spent some time in the NCAC at, o, at Oberlin. Yep. And so like, I deeply understand like athletics is not everything at many of these D3 schools. It is supplementary. It is a great thing to have. It is not our identity by any means. And so that perspective, and these are the schools that are looking at it and saying, listen, let's be extra cautious. Let's not give athletes anything extra that all the other students don't get compared to other conferences like the ODEC or the MIAA, where they're like, we're having sports because we need these kids on campus paying full tuition or else we don't survive as a school. So it's, it's like athletics for survival in many of these cases. And, and it's, you know, Ryan and I predicted last summer that we're going to see a lot of these D3 schools that are enrollment driven, that do not have the highest academic standards. They're going to be in trouble. And we've already seen that a couple of times, not even lacrosse related, just as a school, that business model is flawed when, when you don't have athletics attached to it. No, I mean, it's well said. And that's one of the things that I, I've made the argument that it insulates lacrosse because with such a large roster and such a, a player population that tends to come from such affluent backgrounds, I think there's an advantage due to the economics of the way in which they support universities that rely on what is otherwise a shrinking population, which is, you know, on-campus enrollment. And I think that it lurks in the shadows of this thick to second half of this decade because of flattened birth rates and declined birth rates mm -hmm. during the housing crisis. And so when you accelerate that with an increased acceptance of online learning, mm -hmm. as well as an increased awareness of what it actually offers, then I think as, you know, a admissions officer at one of these schools who's responsible for recruiting, the threat of what your 2030 enrollment looks like if you, I don't know, I, the, just the, the value of 45 heads in just continue to increase. And I think, you know, you can make the argument that that's a exploitative way to use or look at athletes, but for folks who like the infrastructure that college provides to athletics and specifically lacrosse, I don't know, it kind of seems exciting almost. It's going to create opportunities. Yeah. I mean, education at the end of the day is just another business. So that's, that's really what it comes down to. Now, now pivoting slightly away from this, I know that your role at, at Inside Lacrosse is not to be the recruiting guru, but 
you do see the the effect of what this might have have. So with the Ivy League doing the standstill, we've already seen people enter the transfer portal, but I have to imagine that this is going to have a trickle down effect for kids possibly coming in next year or the year after, because now all of these guys are redshirting again. And now you're going to have, you know, like Denver had 60 something kids on the roster. And, and, and I saw some tweets flying back and forth about, you know, maybe you look at, you know, Patrick even was, was talking about, maybe you look at the Patriot league a little bit harder if you don't want to be on a 67 man roster. What do you think is the overall trend that we're going to see here? with this increased, you know, there's just a lot of people staying in college longer now on the incoming recruiting classes. Yeah. I mean, I think before even getting into that, I would just talk about the nature of how college coaches are trying to build their rosters. Mm -hmm. You know, I, places like Stony Brook and High Point and Air Force that are bringing in classes that are 17 to 22, 23 guys have not become uncommon at this point. Mount St. Mary's does it every year and has for a while. And they do it for a variety of reasons, attrition, right? So whether it's players that quit once they get there or transfer out, um, you have to forecast what your roster is going to look like. And typically you have to forecast what your roster is going to look like on April 15th, which is going to be a little different from what it looks like on February 1st. And so when the motivation is to, you know, be able to practice full field or, or scrimmage of a full, whatever, you know, you need to have like 38 guys healthy on a date on a given day in order to be assured that you're going to be able to do that. And when you start to do that math, you know, all right, last year we had a rash of injuries. Now we know what it's like to have 11 guys in sweats on the sidelines. Well, then it all of a sudden makes a little bit more sense. It's like, all right, well, if we can carry 53, we should carry 53. Now, to your point about 67, yeah, that's different for sure. And how long that'll persist, I don't know. I'd be interested in whether or not Denver has 67 guys at the end of the season. Um, with respect to what it does or what, what impact it'll have on the 21s, 22s, and 23s, I think it's a little early I think that it's not going to be equal across each class. I think that the 21s are going to be particularly affected by the fact that college coaches weren't able to watch them live last yeah. summer. And the reason I feel that way is because typically, you know, there's 70 in change over the course of the last five years, there's been somewhere between 71 or 72 and 75 programs right now. We're at 74 with the loss of Furman and each class is bigger than 10 guys. So I think a thousand is a pretty good round number to say there's probably about a thousand division one spots in a given class year. Our recruiting database is not comprehensive. Um, and mm -hmm. I haven't done this since we reconciled our class of 2020 with the actual rosters that have been posted online. Um, but my expectation is that there's probably going to be about 850 spots in the class of 20, uh, 21. So about a 15% reduction. And I don't, this is the counterfactual that I'm interested in. Had the dead period not been in place last summer and college coaches been on sidelines, predominantly watching 22s, the class that they were about to start recruiting actively. But the way that these events are scheduled is that typically you have no other choice, but to watch 21s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what happens is you go and you watch the 21 game block and you're sitting with five other guys. And if you're the assistant coach at Vermont and you're good friends with the assistant coach at Stony Brook and you are watching the same game and you see an uncommitted 21 
and you're just like, I don't know who that kid is, but he's awesome. You feel compelled to take him because if you don't, you're going to be playing against him for four years. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the lack of seeing that player first and foremost this past summer, because when you're watching everything on video, you're not forced to watch 21s. And the fact that you didn't do it in community when you knew that your rival saw the same thing that you did Hmm. meant that you didn't feel compelled to take that player out of competitive fear. Hmm. And I'm not saying that's the only reason that the class is smaller, but my argument is if there had been coaches on sidelines at events last summer, it probably would have shrunk that gap that I think is ultimately going to end up being about 15% when you compare the class of 20 with the class of 21. Now, extrapolating that forward, I think a couple things are going to happen. Number one, I don't think it's easy to predict how the retention of grad students is going to compare in the future to Mm -hmm. how it compared this past year. I think the trauma of losing your senior season does have an effect on a group of people that might make them more likely to take that additional year than subsequently. Now, I also think that's offset by the fact that you can plan academically to take advantage of your additional year of eligibility in a way that you weren't able to if this was sprung upon you in April of May, April and May of your senior season. So I just don't know how that's going to net out is essentially where that, you know, kind of resolves itself. But I do think that 22s, I mean, we know pretty much definitively that coaches won't be on sidelines until June, July 1st at the earliest. Whether or not they will be on sidelines from July 1st to the end of the recruiting session this summer, I don't know. So I don't know how much that like kind of competitive side of the 22s are going to get rectified in comparison to the class year ahead of them. But if there are coaches on the sidelines, I'd be willing to bet that, you know, that 850 person class ends up becoming 900, 925, somewhere in that range. And then you continue to kind of get back to normal. So that's the way I see it trickling down. Um, But ultimately I think that there's no question about it. Like in from 2022, to 2025 six rit tufts salisbury lynchburg they're gonna have the best teams they've ever had there's no question in my mind you've already seen it like some of the guys mm. that are coming in these places are division one players everybody knows it and mm. they just didn't get an offer that was better than the opportunity to compete right away at rit well exactly right and some of those guys i mean even though there was the dead period you know this past summer some of those guys were still going on visits to division three schools and getting phone calls from those guys and having the ability to go and see some of those places so those kids you know were and i think it's a great thing it kind of just you know now you're you know pivoting to a completely different thing it just shows obviously the growth of the game and um how how kids are kind of i don't want to say stumbling onto it but they have the ability to see some more opportunities that they might not have seen um, had something like this had happened, had not happened. Go ahead, Terry. I was just going to make the argument that I think D3 schools are by and large investing in their student athlete experience to make the gap smaller and make it more justifiable to play at that level. And it's really, in my opinion, less about the gap between the top five division three school opportunities and the bottom 20 or 30 division one school opportunities. And it's way more about the gap between the top five D threes and like 50 to 75 among the D three rankings, right? Mm -hmm. Like the opportunity, you know, I mean, we don't need to get into like the specifics, but Cabrini winning a national championship is a really good example of, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of like, I think in, I know that there are differences here. I know I'm over 
Bree is more like Stevenson than it is like a lot of other places. They see what Stevenson does in terms of investing in lacrosse. Stevenson wins a national championship. And six years later, uh, Cabrini wins a national championship. Like, yeah, it's coincidental to some extent, but not completely. And so, you know, you look at a school that had been traditionally a top 20 program that goes to the national championship level. Well, there's as many other schools that had never sniffed the top 30 that now all of a sudden have increased the type of investment they make in the program. And it manifests itself in so many different ways, including hiring a quality coach. And all of a sudden now they're knocking on the door, whether it's to the tournament or quarterfinals or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And having been, you know, having been on staff in the Mac, I can see the player experience being the, the gap is so different between like a D one football and a D three football. <laughs> it, that's a massive gap in player experience, but like a, a Mac school compared to an SCAC, many arguments could be made that it's even better at the D three level for the player. Now, maybe not financially, but every other way you can make that argument that they're getting just as much gear. They're getting just as much, you know, exposure. They're getting just as much like you're, you're just having an amazing experience. And that gap does not like, there's not that small of a gap in any other sport, I think right now than it, there is for lacrosse. So we are big fans of, of bashing the D one or bust mentality on, on the show. So I think that, yeah, you're, I, I don't know how to characterize my support of that. I <laughs> work in an office that is heavily predominated by division three college mm -hmm. lacrosse players. So uh, certainly it has seeped into my subconscious. Uh, I was pretty vocal on Twitter that I was going to follow the class of 21 D three recruiting more closely than I had had any of the prior classes. And that came to fruition and I'm super fascinated by the mechanics of it. Um, and I think ultimately from a numbers game standpoint, it's prudent from every level, right? Whether you're, I don't know, in recruiting media, whether you're an aspiring college lacrosse player, whether you're a club director who's trying to get his kids placed at the next level, or whether you're an aspiring college coach, like, you know, you can live a great life. I mean, the, co the coach that I speak to probably more frequently than any is Peter Lasagna. And he's probably the preeminent example of somebody who proactively chose division three and, and Bates was not a you know, no, national championship contending division no, program when he was just on the heels of having won the division one coach of the year honor yeah, at Brown and, and the Ivy League and the Ivy League championship and that great and his own team. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing. And he consciously took that, um, you know, for no, no other reason. Probably it's, you know, it's, it's a quality of life. It's funny. My brother actually, you know, teaches in Lewiston, Maine, you know, where, where, you know, where Bates is and he go, drives by it all the time. And I'm, he's, you know, it's just, it, it's amazing. And you're starting to see that a lot more people are, are making those conscious decisions, obviously, you know, quality of life goes into that. Totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that to kind of bring this around, like it'll be very difficult to forecast what the next 10 years looks like. Um, I hope that we're about to talk about the Atlantic sun um, and what that means for yeah. lacrosse and college lacrosse, um, because the component of this conversation, right? Like the subtext of everything is that the supply of players has outpaced the supply of spots, right? So the demand for spots is outpaced the supply for spots. And that is not sustainable forever. It's, I, I would imagine one of two things is going to happen. Either the supply of players is going to plateau and the demand for college spots is going to diminish. Seems relatively unlikely in my opinion, or 
the supply of college spots is going to increase. I think it's, it, that is what I've kind of invested this like portion of my career in, right? Like there aren't very many beats that I care more about than this, the, the expansion of division one. Yep. And, uh, and, and that's a big part of why. Um, and so what does that do, right? Like what is the accordion effect that happens to, I don't know, Bates, right? If they're getting division one quality players from California, Seattle and Ohio, um, but now all those guys, all of a sudden, those guys have an opportunity to play at just to be consistent. I'm going to use the same hypotheticals that I used on my podcast with Quint, but uh, Valparaiso or Arizona State, yeah. right? You know, how does that kid make that choice? I think what you've seen from Utah in these first couple games is very illustrative of how you identify, cultivate talent in relatively unknown places, right? Like Ramsey McCurry, Woodlands committed to Notre Dame, like he's kind of an, a symbol for like that new. Oh yeah. We've got Jack Jasinski on the show in like two weeks, you know, yeah. Alabama. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, but you know, there are a bunch of other guys who, I don't know, didn't get a ton of D one looks. They're from the Western part of the United States. So they were a little bit more familiar with that staff or they walked on or whatever the case may be. And uh, the program is thriving. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think they're like, you know, one and one against Denver and Bellarmine, probably not going to surprise very many people. But when you lift the hood up and realize how different this personnel was mm-hmm. compared to last year, that one and one it's, is much more huge. impressive than yeah. you would otherwise assume. Their curve, you know, they've kind of, you know, that learning curve, they've shortened that curve considerably. And you're seeing just their progress across the board, the play on the field. You know, you, you talked about they're getting those those recruits from all those uh, non-traditional hot, you know, those non-traditional areas. And now they're starting to pull some of those recruits from the actual traditional hotbeds. They're getting those kids from Long Island. You know, they're getting some of those 91 kids out from out from the east end of Long Island. They're getting those kids from Maryland. So, yep. you know, it, it's going to continue to build. It's almost like... Uh, and I hate to say it because, you know, Nick is, you know, he was, he was there at the beginning with Michigan. You know, this is kind of the jump that people may, might have expected early on from Michigan, but you're seeing it at, from Utah. Well, and to be fair, Michigan, JP's plan at Michigan was always to schedule as hard as possible yep. from day one. And whether you agreed with that or not, that de- definitely was an issue long-term in establishing that early success. Yep. Because right. it's really hard to go play teams like Duke and UNC when you have mostly a club team. Absolutely. And, no and doubt. So I think if anything, I hope Utah took that and was like, let's let's schedule differently. Let's take a different approach. And they had a lot more turnover from their club days to their varsity days than Michigan did for sure. Absolutely. So but yeah, before we get to that A Sun news, because we do want to talk about that. And not to make you a favorite is a terrible word to use on podcasts because no one can ever commit. But what is one or what were one or two of your favorite games from this past weekend? Huh. Um, uh, I mean, I'll pick one. I'm just trying to decide what the criteria should be. I mean, from an emotional and excitement standpoint, there's no question it was Duke Denver. Mm-hmm. But from the most surprising outcome and the game that I think is going to stick with me the longest, which like in my job is probably the more important game. It was definitely Carolina Denver. Um, You know, I I don't know. There's like a couple different functions of what I should do or take away. Right. So I watched five of the six. I didn't get an opportunity to watch very much of Bellarmine. I'm sorry. Mercer versus Lenore Ryan, but I watched the other five and, um, and yeah, I mean the, uh, 
you know, I, I picked Denver. <laughs> I thought uh, <laughs> yeah. they were going to have an advantage from having played two games versus Carolina's having not played any. Um, I don't want to overreact. I'm not going to overreact to the fact they scored 23 goals because, you know, I think if you remove the, this was everything going right from Carolina and everything going wrong from Denver, then the game's probably more like 17, 13, maybe something in that Mm -hmm. ballpark. And in that scenario, I think we're all still, and I don't know if you guys feel this way, but adjusting to scores in shot clock time, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so uh, 24, 13 seems shocking and it is for sure. Um, My biggest moderate reaction to that game is like, is so I, I would wager that that's the best game North Carolina is going to play this year. And I don't think that's a bold statement because that's like the best game I've ever seen any lacrosse team play. Mm -hmm. So like if they play that well again, then yeah, I mean, they're like, you know, win the national championship and it's not going to be close. I think that the most important thing to really try to sink your teeth into is how our team is going to adjust. I mean, Quinn's big point was we played so fast, Denver couldn't match their speed, right? And bring that up. Was it like, could they not match it because, you know, they flew across the country and they played Duke 43 hours before? Could they not match it because they're they stylistically are just different from Carolina could they not match it because what Carolina is this year is not what they were last year and so it took teams by surprise like I think all of those questions are important to answer when you forecast how good they're going to be right and it's interesting because when you look at their schedule you know they're playing basically the southern conference over the Mm -hmm. course of their next four games and to the extent that that represents a barometer um are they going to just blotto teams? Are they going to be up at 14, you know, 14 to two every single game? I don't know. I mean, it's possible. It um, is, you know, Chris Gray. I, you know, I mean, I can't talk enough about that guy. I mean, <laughs> I was at, I coached the Chorum. Um, yeah. I love, I love Chris Gray. Um, he's a phenomenal guy. Um, phenomenal player. I think, you know, people, it's a shame last season happened the way it did because he's just, he is really just a special type of player. Um, so, I mean, blowing up. Yeah. Something recently happened and we want to talk about it because you tweeted about how this could be the norm and it won't be the last time this happens. So UMass puts athletics on pause and we get a game out of nowhere, Virginia against army this Saturday. Is this something that you see happening quite a bit this year as problems flare up in in programs across the country? Well, it wasn't quite out of nowhere. um, Right. Because yeah. Quint texted Lars as soon as he saw that UMass shut down. He's like, hey, you guys should play Army because Lars had said in the postgame that he wanted to find another game. They were originally mm-hmm. supposed to play Lehigh, and then there was kind of an internal decision at Lehigh that they weren't going to play until the following week. So um, do I see it happening more frequently later in the spring? Yes and no. I think there's going to be makeup games. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they qualify by the standard that you're talking about. Um, but I also wonder how, when teams get into conference play, how willing are conferences, go- or how open are teams going to be to play a non-conference game when you were supposed to play it? You know what I mean? I think there's a little mm-hmm. bit of complication there that is going to be hard to forecast. Um, 
But then I think it's going to kind of, the pendulum is going to swing back at the end of the season, like the last two weeks of the season to kind of where it currently is um, given the way that teams have built in a week in the end of April or in May, depending on whether or not they're having a conference tournament in order to, again, make up for games if they don't have games to make up. And then there's just a bunch of teams that have an open date. Like, yeah, you're going to see, I think, more games out of nowhere. I think it's going to be pretty exciting. Um, yeah. yeah. This Army Virginia game is going to be the best game of the weekend. It's, yeah, yeah it's gonna exactly. Be, yeah. We're just trying to find we're a game to predict, that. and we're like, that's probably the best one. But I, I agree with you that if – especially early here because we don't know what the future looks like. So if a game opens up and if you have a chance to fill it, not now's probably the time to do it because you don't know if you're ever going to get that game spot back. You, you don't know what the spring will turn into. So mm-hmm. take it while you can get it. And I think like you said, at the end of the spring too, after conferences or close to the end of that, you might see teams kind of, you know, rushing to fill a spot and make sure that they get another game in before a possible tournament run. And, you know, those teams, it was mentioned during one of the broadcasts, like the high points and the Richmonds, the teams that are always just just missing the tournament without some of these Ivy League players in it. They might look for that one more game that they can use to propel themselves and guarantee them that spot uh, when it comes time to, to pick the, the NCAA tournament teams. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been talking to a bunch of people about the criteria today because clearly the RPI is not going to be relevant. And right. as a result, like, all the criteria is not relevant because the strength of schedule and the quality wins are based off of the RPI as well. So, I mean, we have had conversations with folks who are at arm's length from the committee over the course of the last several years, trying to advocate for an alternative formula to the RPI and have not succeeded, but never better than when, the RPI is completely irrelevant. So right. we'll yeah. see how that comes to fruition. It hasn't yeah. been discussed yet. They can't hide behind numbers that it this is time. Not... Yeah. Well, they can't hide behind because there's numbers. Number doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now they're even more flawed. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So moving forward, you're a big fan of expansion in D1. I mean, we we all are, right? We we all want D1 to expand, but like you mentioned earlier, I would hope so. yeah, it's something that you hold near and dear to you, and the addition of the A-Sun, which I'm sure you had probably heard rumblings of to like the average lacrosse fan. This probably came out of nowhere. Um, this appears to solve a lot of problems. And just to tell everybody what happened, basically the A-Sun basically took on lacrosse. Well, do you want me to break it down? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Why go right ahead. Yeah, you do it. All right, so... What happened was Furman dropped men's lacrosse and all the independents were like, oh, I need that spot. So then Utah, Cleveland State, Robert Morris, uh, Hampton to a lesser degree, they had their coaching change going on. They obviously haven't played a full division one schedule, so not motivated in the same way as the other three. Go after Furman's spot. The coaches talk about it. They make recommendations. They vote on it. The recommendation goes to the SoCon athletic directors in order for it to actually happen, it has to go to the SOCON presidents, like the not, not the yep. Mensa Cross SOCON, but the actual conference, and it gets voted down. So um, no opportunity for expansion. Nobody, none of the three independents are going to get a conference home out of this. So that happened in early December. This had started in August. And, and so when I, there were a couple of different voices that were involved, mm-hmm. um, but basically, they just get to the A-Sun commissioner, Ted Gumbart, who is just seasoned, right? He's been at the A-Sun for 35 years. He 
has a career and a reputation around trying to provide opportunities for student athletes. So he sees this and he's like, this isn't right. Let's try to fix it. And he's got a, the infrastructure for a solution. So I don't know exactly what the time frame was, but it sounds like, you know, right around the first of the year, this is when it started to actually pick up steam. And of course, once that happened, the SOCOM becomes concerned about how they're going to survive. And so now all of a sudden, Robert Morris and Cleveland State are getting two offers for conference affiliation after having zero for in Cleveland State's case, the entirety existence of the program. And uh, because of the familiarity between the ASUN and the SOCON, they were able to kind of broker a deal that was mutually beneficial. And it included a full ASUN member in Jacksonville remaining in the SOCON because that's what made sense geographically. So the SOCON is a, for 2022, a six team league that includes current members, Jacksonville, like I said, High Point and Richmond, who have both won the championship, mm-hmm. VMI and Mercer, two programs that are looking to improve. And then Hampton gets added as the sixth team, which is actually also a member of uh, the SOCON, if I understand things correctly. The ASUN is a new conference. The three uh, independents that I already mentioned, Utah, Cleveland State, and uh, Robert Morris, find a conference home. Bellarmine, which is a full member of the ASUN as of like a year ago. And then Air Force, which makes geographic sense because of Utah, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're traveling, you, you can, I don't, I don't know how they're going to do it in terms of like, will you play both of them on the same trip or whatever the case may be. But then the kicker was, and I'm sure that you can shed some light on this, but Detroit mm-hmm. Mercy, who had been an affiliate of the MAC, mm-hmm. joining as the sixth member, they are in the Horizon League as like a full athletic department. Yep. Robert Morris and Cleveland State are both in the Horizon League as well. So now all three Horizon League teams are competing under the same umbrella. That's one of the reasons I've used Valparaiso as my like kind of placeholder yeah. uh, mm-hmm. additional program. I could use Oakland or, um, you know, any of number of this Wisconsin Green Bay, Wisconsin Green Bay, I think is in the, yep. the Horizon yep, League. Yep, they are. So, you know, any one of those three and maybe all three of those decide, all right, well, now if the three of us add it, Horizon League lacrosse is a six-team aq conference itself and that is the perfect dovetail into why this is so important it's not just about bureaucracy first of all it's about those three independents who previously didn't have a path to the ncaa tournament now having a path right it is so important for the health of a program to not feel like your season is over when you've lost your second or third game in february or early march right you've got to keep hope alive until mid-april in order to get better as a team over the course of that very important month between when you might otherwise give up in early March to, you know, even if you don't make your conference tournament, when your dream dies in mid April, still playing meaningful games later into the season, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the most important part of it, you know, and there's so many other, so many other additional um, positives to that. I mean, you know, it's, it, you, you, I mean, you've touched on all of them. There, there's so many of them. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, I mean, that's what it comes down to. I mean, like you said, in terms of, you know, the lifeblood of the program, you know, the continuation of the program, like you're, you're kind of taking away one of those things that, you know, might've been, you know, the thing in the back of the head of a potential recruit. Well, now we have the opportunity to compete for a conference championship, go to the NCAA tournament, you know, you know, we, you know, you, you can almost make the argument that, Hey, we're on a level playing field with everybody else. You know, everybody has the opportunity to, to win a conference championship now. No question. I mean, I, I remember incredibly fondly and not vividly because I was at a wedding when it happened, but you know, Detroit Mercy was leading Notre Dame at halftime of the yep. first round NCAA tournament game. 
again, I would imagine there's somebody on this call that can provide greater clarity <laughs> and detail on what that was like. But the point is that, I mean, again, I don't know. I don't want to get, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it, but like the Richmond Spiders might be able to win a national championship. Like that program yeah. is a yeah. national championship level program. And no they didn't exist in 2013 they wouldn't exist if it weren't for conference expansion and the presence of the AQ and they've invested heavily in their program because they know they can be competitive. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to changing the landscape of the sport in every single possible way, that is what we're talking about when we have these types of conversations. Mm -hmm. So, so first of all, let me, let me hit on those Detroit points for a second. So I was there for that game and that was probably the most incredible live game I've ever taken. in personally to, Detroit was well, always... before you move on from that. <laughs> tell us about Jordan Halpy's performance. Jordan Halpy is by far, and and there's a lot of guys that go underrated and unknown, but I can't personally. He has to be my pick because how do you lead the country and cause turnovers and no one knows who the heck you are, and then you go play in the NLL for a little bit. Like, the reason is because people aren't watching your games and everybody just assumes a stat keeper is not accurately recording. Your <laughs> and I'll tell you at Detroit, very accurate stat keeper, especially for cause turnovers, <laughs> because that was like the claim to fame. But I mean, and, and maybe off call, I can tell you about how Jordan Hoopy got, um, got recruited, but um, you know, there was always talk being an affiliate of the Mac that if more Mac teams wanted to add, or, you know, the Mac pretty much at will could just remove Detroit. Correct. Not, not, not that easily, but it could be done. And there's really not much Detroit could do about it. So this solves... I'll tell you this, Mac coaches do not like driving across the state of Ohio in order to get to one of their opponents. Yeah. Or no, to Canada, which they can no longer do because, right. you know, the borders are closed, but, and, and honestly, they're not fun rides to go up to uh, Marist or Siena right. <laughs> and from Detroit either. So the feeling's mutual. Um, but the, it, this solves so many problems and it's so nice in today's world that when you can actually do something like this, that solves so many problems for so many people without creating many new ones that you actually do it and it gets done. Like this gives yes. Hampton a home, which is massive for it's their so future huge. success. Yep. Because we had Chaz on the, on the show a couple months ago and you know, you could tell that this is kind of a looming thing for him every year, you know, with scheduling and trying to be really relevant in D one and make this happen it takes stuff like this, totally. like this is only going to help. And then as far as what you said about Richmond, I, I would argue the same thing for high point because high point totally. is, is it's not that different. And if you've never been to high point people, you need to go. Cause it's like Disneyland for college students. Sure it's a um, it between is a country club. Yeah. Steakhouse, steakhouse, movie theaters, um, snacks on the way to class, ice cream, know. man, running around. And, campus. and, and even Pools. other schools like VMI because VMI, is this kind of like slowly, like they're going to come out of nowhere and they're going to surprise some people because there are things happening at VMI behind the scenes that, you know, people just don't pay attention to. And it's really nice because now, you know, that conference just got really, really interesting because it's, oh. and, and the A-Sun is the same way because when I look at the A-Sun and I'm familiar with all these teams being in the Midwest, like Robert Morris was not a conference game for, for Detroit every year. And, Robert Morris, I love the way that they play. It's very unique, and it always gives people problems. Bellarmine's the same way. Cleveland State, like, these are teams that nobody wants to play. And then, by the way, Air Force just gets better every single year. And Utah, I mean, they're so new, but you can already see, like, Utah is going to be exactly what you thought when you thought a Pac-12 school was going to add lacrosse. Yeah. 
So this is not only good for the sport, but like this creates two immediate conferences that are going to be incredibly talented from top to bottom. And I think this brings back the point of, do we add, you know, we're not adding rounds to the, the tournament because there's not enough D1 teams, but you brought up the point online that we're probably going to get that second playing game back, right? Yep. Yeah. So there's a rule in the NCAA that the tournament field can, it must be at least 50% at larges. And so when you do the math, this is now 10 AQs, uh, which in a 16 team field would obviously mean that you only had six at large spots. So the way you solve it is you take four of those AQs, you make them play before the 16 team field is set and you eliminate two of them through the two playing games and you keep your 18 field. So yeah, I mean, it, you know, when you, I haven't done the analysis recently to know what would be the required number of teams in order to make the mathematical justification for 20. Um, my guess is that it's probably in the mid 80s, right? Mm -hmm. It would probably require about mm -hmm. uh, 10 more teams in order to say, when you look at other Division One sports, particularly women's lacrosse, the proportion of men's teams that are represented in the tournament is too low. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it doesn't, it's not a mandate, right? It's possible. Right. You just need good advocacy internally. And unfortunately for this climate, you need healthy financial outlook. But, um, you know, if we can live with the two playing games for a year or two, and then, you know, see what the financial outlook looks like, uh, maybe there's the prospect of expanding to 20. Yeah. I mean, this, this just opens more doors. You know, having another conference just means those schools can take a harder look at adding lacrosse. There's more ADs to talk to within the conference to get more information, a lot easier. It, it just, it's, it takes down a few barriers. Not, not all of them, obviously there's still a, a lot that gets in the way, but this definitely opens more doors than it closes. And then Ryan, to, to end this whole thing with the A-Sun, you were close friends with coach Whitley. What have you heard from him about, you know, is, is this something he's been really gassed up about or, or what's the deal over at Bellarmine? Well, listen, I, I think it, it's just, it's like, you know, what, what everybody feels it's exciting, you know, it's exciting. Um, you know, I mean, you know, you, you know, for them, I, I think the big thing for Bellarmine, I, I think with them, you know, and I'm not sure, you know, every, you know, not everybody's familiar with it, you know, for a really long time when coach McGetrick started that program, they were a division one program playing in a, at a division two school. Now everybody in that in that it, at that institution is completely Division One. I. I think you know not only does that increase the profile of their institution, but it increases you know you know the needs and wants for other programs. That in turn is going to help the lacrosse program. You know they they had a great basketball program at the Division Two level. There you know I, hopefully that continues over to the Division One level. It's a really exciting time. I mean just in 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 terms of everything going heard on at Bellman. Um, and, and, and for them, I'm pretty I think sure that they're the, they're currently, I'm pretty sure that currently the men's basketball team is leading the ASUN. I'm pretty sure they're like the number yeah, one, so they're like know, number one in the standings in the ASUN. I know when, so when I was at coaching at Lincoln Memorial, um, Bellarmine, you know, it was Lincoln Memorial and Bellarmine in terms of, you know, the high end of, you know, division two. And I mean, correct. You know, I just fact checked that. I can kind of speak to it because I know at that time Bellarmine was was searching out Division One. Lincoln Memorial was also searching out Division One opportunities, um, and Bellarmine ended up, you know, they were a more um, appealing 
you know, uh, institution at the time, but, you know, Wit, Wit's excited. I mean, it's a great opportunity, you know, there, you know, and, and for them, it's a lot of the teams that they play year in and year out. So their schedule changes a little bit, but not much. Um, you know, I think for them, it, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of step into a situation where they can be successful and continue to be successful. I know for him, he's really excited about the team that he has this year. Um, you know, they had a lot of guys back. They have a lot of guys coming in and he's doing everything he can to, to recruit the heck out of that place. And he's doing a great job. He's got a really good staff. And, and I'll end this whole ASUN talk with, I just want Florida Gulf Coast to add lacrosse so that I can retire to Florida and, and just do stats. That was something. a legit rumor. That, yeah, like, I mean, right it's, on the it's 10 minutes of, from my parents' place, so I will legitimately – I'll be the volunteer assistant at Florida Gulf I, Coast tomorrow. It's just a matter of time. With all the success that you're seeing in those Sunshine State Conference schools, you know, I think it's just a matter of time. I, I really do. I mean, Florida lacrosse is no slouch, so, I mean, there's a lot of guys with legit pedigree that have moved down there and would be happy to start a program down there. But Very moving on so. – uh, Terry, I have heard from multiple people that obviously you're the CEO at Inside Lacrosse now, but that is not how you got your start there. Can you shed some light <laughs> on, uh, you know, let's talk about you for a quick second here. Shed some light on your beginnings at IL and uh, kind of how that transcended you into your current position. Yeah, sure. Well, so I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I uh, played high school football and lacrosse, got into lacrosse because my older brother, uh, God, Jesus, got a stick mailed to him for Christmas when he was a freshman in high school. Uh, and I was the water boy and the ball boy on his teams. And just when I arrived as a ninth grader, I was one of the few kids in school who knew how to throw and catch. So took advantage of that leg up, developed a really strong passion for it. Uh, went to Loyola, Maryland, would, brought me to Baltimore. And I didn't know that Inside of the Cross existed when I was in high school. I didn't learn about the publication until I was already here. But I had a sense that something like it probably existed. And if it did, it was probably in Baltimore. So it is true that that was a factor in my decision to go to Loyola. So um, get there, get involved with the student newspaper, like, you know, basically day one, cover the men's team. They're really good that year. They, at least they had a really good recruiting class that was my age. So um, there was already some interest uh from IL toward the program at that point. And the first game that I covered, I sat next to the guy who then four years later ended up hiring me. So um, during the course of my college career, just kind of was one of those guys who would hang around the office and work for free and try to write stories. So as you can probably tell by the last hour of my conversation, I came up through the editorial side. I was really fortunate with the timing of when I graduated and got hired. I was, I was hired full-time and October of 2007, and the company was sold to a company called American City Business Journals right around the end of 2007, the beginning of 2008. And then obviously the world changed uh, in that exact span yeah. of time. But, um, you know, we were fortunate by virtue of the momentum that the sport was carrying and everything else along those lines. So from an editorial standpoint, just kind of did everything, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, taught myself a lot of stuff, uh, you know, producing and editing audio, a little bit of video editing, not much, um, you know, photo layout, page design, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, kind of grew into that role of managing the editorial process for the magazine. And then that was kind of a stepping stone to take on more senior management. So took over as CEO in the beginning of 2015 and 
it's been, or publisher at the time, uh, my title changed about a year ago and uh, it's been wild. I have no formal finance or management <laughs> training. So that's been um, learned by doing uh, and asking for a lot of help. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's exact, it's, it's my dream job, right? It's exactly mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. And yeah. uh you know, just kind of figured out a way to stay in the batter's box, continue to fall off pitches or take <laughs> balls or whatever the case may be. Um, I use that analogy intentionally realizing how many yeah. cross yeah. fans it'll work. But, uh, but yeah, just, you know, take another pitch, take another pitch, and then kind of figure out a way to make what you want happen, happen. Yeah. I mean, Isle's grown so much over the years. I remember, I mean, to this day, I still even if I have no other reason to go there, I still use it to check scores and, and look at the calendar for the upcoming week and see where the games are being played. I mean, it's an institution in the lacrosse industry. So, I mean, I had a subscription when it was uh, still regular, like newspaper before they went to the glossy, yeah, before they went to the glossy, I still have the Mikey Powell uh, recruiting edition when he was on the cover, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the dome. I mean, my, that's, that's what we call an OG. Yeah. I mean, I live, I live, you know, in suburban Michigan and we're not like, especially in 2004 or five, we're not like a lacrosse hotbed by any means, but I go into my neighbor's house to help remove some furniture. I knew her son played lacrosse at UMBC, which coming out of Michigan was a big deal. And like, he's got this faces in the crowd, um, magazine. Yeah. And I'm like, Holy cow. Like people know about lacrosse outside of Michigan and, and, it really drew me into like looking out and finding inside lacrosse and finding all like back when e lacrosse was a thing and you know obviously lax all stars and everybody else that was covering lacrosse so you know it's it's a lengthless job and uh you know appreciate you keeping the the ship running in the right direction yeah. i hear big things are happening behind the scenes and uh it, it's it's fun to see the events pop up and the recruiting you know it feels just like, you know, Rivals does or ESPN does for, for football. We have that same kind of attention on the lacrosse recruiting side now. And, and it feels it feels very nice to have those resources for, for the youth and for just lacrosse nuts in general. So keep up the great work is basically what Thank I'm you. Exactly <laughs> well, let me right. reciprocate. Let me reciprocate because, you know, I find if it like if Inside Lacrosse had a mission or a mission statement, which I suppose we should, but it would be to make being a fan of lacrosse easier, better, and more fun. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the next step in that for media, in my opinion, is this burgeoning ecosystem of a multitude of voices, right? Because you mentioned a couple of entities that have existed over time, and it will always be the case that um, voices will come and go. Mm -hmm. But the difference between the media landscape now versus when I started is the level of community that can be formed online and the way in which those communities manifest themselves. But one of the things that was always kind of a problem for lacrosse, and I say this like I use a problem with a huge grain of salt, is it was really focused about, it was really focused around people who were playing, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, whether it was videos on how to get better or whether it was streaming tutorials or whatever the case may be like those are all great and they have a really important place in the ecosystem but it's not the same as talking about what's happening on the field on saturdays and that's i think really important to 
taking the next step towards like growing more fans, right? The commercialization of the game, and obviously not everybody's invested in that, but I am, it's something that I care about. The commercialization is dependent on people enjoying watching the sport without playing it currently or in the past. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to make people who have never played the game fans because it's a complex game. But if you can do it, the returns are substantial and it's our job at inside the cross it's your job at going off sides to give people a platform to sink their teeth into the sport and learn mm-hmm. more and enjoy it right you know it's not always about informing everybody it's sometimes about entertaining them and giving them something that makes him want to come back for more yeah and I, I can piggyback on that sometimes i've turned many people into lacrosse fans to the point that my best man made it part of my part of his speech during my wedding that he never knew what a fogo was or an lsm was until he lived with me for about three months and you know you just you gotta you gotta work hard at growing the game and getting wow. people people to give it a chance because you know more often than not once they give it a shot well, that's know, it they'll get hooked they'll well, get that's hooked. it i've never met anybody that's watched the game that hasn't been entertained and hasn't yeah. said, Oh, that's a, that's a good sport. Like that's, I've and never no heard been like, anybody say that. Sucks. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to watch that again. They're, all they have is questions, more questions. So exactly right. All right, Terry, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to talk, you know, cur- we don't usually talk current events like this and, and it's been really nice to talk with somebody that has a lot of insight and kind of behind the scenes knowledge. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It, like I said, it's, it's fun to, be in the different chair, right? Uh, <laughs> be the one answering the questions as opposed to the one asking yep. them. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity.